Our perfection is Christ's goal and Christ's reward. That we would be to him a bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That we as fallen humanity and yet chosen and beloved of the Father. That Christ would through his death and resurrection be able to bring both our body and our soul into eternal perfection. Just as he himself was glorified in body and soul. And that's what the whole man is, both body and soul. We are, in a sense, incomplete when the two are separated. And we'll talk a little bit more about that separation as we go along. But we who trust in Christ will be made perfect in body and soul. And this we count as a great hope of the Christian faith. But how will we be made perfect? And by what events and when? These are the questions that the Scripture uh, will inform us in, and particularly here in Thessalonians chapter 4, where we've just read. The Apostle Paul clearly wanted to emphasize the return of the Lord in the book of Thessalonians because every major section of the book ends with a word about or related to the second coming of Christ. And since every major section of the book ends with a reference to it, then it is fitting that we look at these events uh, in chapter 4 verses 13 to 18 and really we could have read all the way from 4.13 to 5.11 because that's really one section there. Every section has a reference to the glorious appearing of Christ. And how do, what does that teach us? What does that emphasis lead us to? It leads us to the fact that Paul is encouraging us as Christians to live here in no matter what time or, or circumstances we are in human history with reference to and with respect and expectation to the coming of Christ. So whatever doctrine and encouragement and pastoral uh, counseling Paul is giving us throughout the letter of Thessalonians, he is doing that with reference to the return of the Lord. Keep an eye to the sky, he's saying. Look unto Christ. Expect Christ, who will very soon appear. In fact, it's what Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 calls by many different names that bring all these pictures to mind of what that great day will entail. We don't have to look at it, but Peter calls the return of the Lord the day of His coming, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, the day of God, and the day of eternity. Wow, that brings a lot of things to mind. Remember the old hymn, What a Day That Will Be? Now, we used to sing that in the churches that I grew up in. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. And it will be a great day. A great day of realizing to its full, fullness what we have expected and hoped for. But there was a troubling idea that had infiltrated this young church in Thessalonica. And it was a doctrine that had been believed among them that those believers who died before the Lord would come back would somehow not participate fully in the events of that great day, in the great resurrection of the dead, in the great judgment that was to come, and in the, uh, in the, the kingdom of, of eternity that would be there when the new heavens and the new, new earth were brought about. 
We don't know all that was behind that, but we have to assume that this was uh, the teaching that was going around. And so Paul takes this occasion to correct their doctrine and to encourage them concerning the events of that great day. I think that we need this clarity today as much as they needed it then, don't you? I mean, the Word of God stands true, stands written, and there are... Uh, there is every reason for us to look again at these truths related to the Word of God, the straightforward truths concerning the coming of the Lord with no speculation. Just thus saith the Lord. So what happens to us at the second coming of Christ? As believers, Paul is writing to encourage believers to correct their doctrine and comfort them or encourage them. So what happens to us at the second coming of Christ? We read again, verse 13, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. First of all, Paul wants us to understand that when the Lord returns, related to the bodies of believers, both alive and have been put in the grave at the time of his return, there will be a great change of condition. There's going to be a change of condition. Every verse, 13 to 17, um, presents a part or one side of the contrast and comparison between two differing conditions of believers at the return of Christ, and it's related to their bodies. Now, it's assumed by Paul the soul, which is not referred to here, is taken care of. It's assumed by Paul, or it is a given that the soul, once created at conception, continues on, never ceases to exist in some form or another. This we can find in other places of the scripture. I will not go to them this morning. But this is assumed and not spoken of here. So he's talking about a contrast of the bodies of believers. There will be those whose bodies are alive at the time Christ comes, and there will be those who have gone to the grave in their body. Now, these two conditions of our bodies, Paul calls one of two things. He calls them either being awake or asleep. Now, look in chapter 5 of Thessalonians in verse 10, and he says here that Christ died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. And this is, again, a concluding statement for uh, the verses that we read before. Now, he doesn't mean that He's not concerned with <laughs> whether our, our head is upon our pillow in restful sleep when the Lord returns or whether we're standing awake making coffee in the morning. The, the, the picture is a beautiful one. It's a picture for believers of those that, that are just sleeping in the grave. The, because when you see someone sleeping, for instance, if I walk through the house and see my wife napping on the couch there and... and uh, you know, I, I see her, and it's a peaceful, serene setting, and, but what do I expect of her? I expect that she'll wake up before too long. And around our house, there's going to be plenty of noises to help her wake up before she's ready to wake up from that peaceful slumber that she was in. But I expect when I see her sleeping, or when you go to sleep, or when someone that you love goes to sleep, you expect that, oh, they'll rise soon. And that's the picture, and that's the wonderful thing to think of. As a Christian, that when our body is laid in the grave, it's only sleeping, and that's in anticipation of the true fact that it's going to wake again, and that very soon. So Paul uses 
those illustrations to speak about the resurrection of our bodies. And we look in verse 14, and it says there that if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, or since we believe, since that is a primary doctrine of our faith upon which we build, upon which our hope is built, since that's the case, he says in verse 14, even so, or in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, I think the primary idea here is this. While it has a reference, certainly has a reference to those souls who have, are with the Lord that will return with him in the great company of heaven, that's not the primary idea of the verse. That's a secondary idea. That's assumed in the verse. But what's, I believe, primary and being taught in the verse is that just as Jesus died and was gloriously resurrected by the majesty and the power of God, so all the dead in Christ shall likewise share in that same power, the power that raised Christ from the dead and ascent, whereby he ascended up to, to the heavenly regions, so at his coming will be effective in all those who are asleep in Jesus. And we know that power now in the new birth. We know that power of being resurrected from the deadness of our trespasses and sins to the new life that is in Jesus Christ. We know we have gone from death to life. That's a resurrection of a spiritual kind. We know we have been made new. And the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit has been exerted upon all of us who know him by faith. But he's talking here about their bodies and that effective power that shall renew their bodies and perfect them forever to be made like his perfect and immortal body. So it means that we will accompany him, or those who have gone on, those who are now dead, when he returns, will accompany him in the power of his resurrection and in the results of his resurrection, which for us is eternal life. And they're going to bring them to life is the idea. Now, not only a change of bodily condition is set forth, but also an order of how those will be raised. And this is the thrust of the passage by which Paul encourages these believers. He says here in verse 15, for we say to you, now he's going to explain that statement about, about the dead being raised in the power of Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and who remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. He begins to set forth an order. And this is given to us in uh, more detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so let's turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll look at verses 50 to um, 53. So Paul is telling us in Thessalonians that the awakened Christ will not precede the asleep in Christ. In what way? Precede them how? Those living at the time of Christ's return will not come before or precede those who have already died in the Lord. How? In what way? We look here in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and Paul says, Behold, or excuse me, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. An interesting statement. Flesh and blood in our present existence cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I want to inherit the kingdom of God. So in what way do I get there? What way does this present existence change or transform or be made new in order that I can inherit the kingdom of God? 
he explains that the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Paul here helps us to understand what he says in 1 Thessalonians about those who are sleeping or have died in Christ before he returns as compared to those of us who will be living when Christ returns. And he said the one will not precede the other. The living or awake in Christ will not precede the dead in Christ in resurrection, bodily resurrection. And he calls that in Corinthians a mystery. There's a this and then that. There's a before and a, I shouldn't say before, there is a, an, an event and then a subsequent event. I'm not suggesting to you, I know the exact timing of that. I'm not suggesting to you a long period of time. In fact, I think all of the grammar and context of the passage means that they happen together. In fact, we're going to look at that in a moment. I know they happen together and you will see it too. But there is something that happens first. And that's the bodily resurrection of all those who have gone before. And then there is an event that happens to us that we all will see the Lord together. You know, to think of the fact that all those that have gone to be with the Lord in their souls, and their souls are perfected, as it says in Hebrews, the, the souls of the righteous made perfect, is, is a great thought to us, and it's a glorious comfort to us. And Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's the reality for the Christian. We don't go to purgatory, which the Bible speaks nothing of. We go immediately to be with the Lord as believers, our soul. But our body does something very different, does it not? There's a separation where the body ceases to live. It is laid in the ground and it begins to deteriorate and decay. There is no activity of our soul related to that body when the body is laid in the grave. You know, you hear all the, all the talk today about zombies and, you know, it, it's, it's just, you know, it's just silliness, obviously. There is no such thing. But, but it's an idea that has, has, you know, captured the imagination of the world right now and probably always will until the Lord comes and tells you that there are no zombies. Um, but, you know, another thing that's tied to that is the, the idea of, of the activity around a graveyard. And I don't mean to be insensitive at all especially for those whose loved ones have passed away and their bodies are laid in the grave. But let me just tell it to you straight. There is no spiritual or soul activity in the graveyard of those who have departed. There, that's what departing is. The graveyard is the, most, is the least active place as far as a soul or spirit activity that there is anywhere. Your home is much more active with life and spirituality and soul than the graveyard ever could be. Do you see that? Because the body is dead. There is a separation. It's a result of the fall that at death, it's a result of the fall that there is death at all, but at death there's a separation. God made us a whole person, body and soul, intended to be joined together, but death brought a tearing apart of that. A sad condition, which means the body ceases to be animate and it lies in the grave, dead, dead, dead. The soul, if you're a believer, 
has gone to be perfected with the Lord. But there is a difference, though, between those who have gone and are with the Lord and are perfected in that way. There's a difference between that and what will happen on the last day when Christ returns. Because they're waiting a final perfection. Though their souls have been renewed, though their eyes have been opened, though they live with the Lord in His presence and anticipate the great day, there is yet something to come. And that something is when God, by the power of the resurrection of of the Lord Jesus Christ, will call their bodies forth. And their bodies will be glorified to join with their eternal souls and they will be again the whole man, perfect in Christ, a bride without spot and without wrinkle. And this is our hope. This is our glorious hope. This is our anticipation of that great day which is to come. I believe that for those who are alive when the Lord returns, they will experience something a little different from that, maybe a lot different from that. And here's what Paul teaches us. Let's come back to Thessalonians chapter 4. He begins to teach this in the following verses, 16 and 17. Again, he's explaining what he said before, the statements that he made. And he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then... We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Let's get some details here. Those alive when the Lord returns will not experience the separation that I just spoke to you about, the separation of the body and the soul. Because something that only is revealed there through Paul in the New Testament is that there is The raising of the dead of those who have gone to sleep in Jesus, their bodies raise up. But our bodies have not died. We will be alive, he says, live and remain when the Lord comes. And Paul places himself among them because no man knows the day or the hour. And so we're to be ready in our day, just like Paul was ready in his day. So he, cl- he classes himself among them who are alive in their body when the Lord returns. We will not pass through the portals of death. We will not pass through the experience of dying and the experience of having our soul separated from our body. We go through the express lane into glory. No waiting on the express lane to glory. Now it says in the Bible, it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. So there's no doubt that there will be some transformation that this body, which is mortal, will be somehow changed and cease to exist in its present form and be made into an immortal body. But it won't be through passing through the experience of having our soul separated from our body as those who have gone before us. You see that? Verse 17, Paul uses a particular Greek word in reference to those who are alive when Christ comes. And it's the Greek word harpazo. And it means to be suddenly and with great force caught 
captured, if you will. It, it can have that military context where, where you're captured and you're removed from here and you're taken to another place. Forcefully removed, if you will. But the idea is with power, with great power, to be caught and removed from one place to another place. The Latin translation of the Greek had a word that they used, and it was the word rapturo. And from that, we gathered our English word in these days, rapture. You hear people a lot of times maybe overly discussing the rapture. Well, that's where this idea in the word comes from. It's a straightforward biblical idea. And we don't need to even elaborate on it because Paul is telling us that what it means is that suddenly with great power, those who are alive in their body at the time Christ returns will undergo an immediate and sudden change. They will be caught away from this present mortal existence of living with an imperfect soul, still affected by the fall, and a certainly imperfect body that is deteriorating yet while we are alive, to suddenly being perfect in soul and perfect in body. It's a sudden, immediate, powerful change that happens. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Certainly, catching away there means to be removed from one place to another, to be removed from heaven, I mean from earth to heaven, but more than that, it means to be a sudden change of condition. And that's why I spoke about the condition of the bodies of believers when Christ comes. It means a change of, of condition in which we will go from mortal to immortal. It's a lot of places in the scripture that we could go to, but just one that has the same word, and it's in Revelation chapter 12. Let's look at it together. Revelation chapter 12 there are a lot of places we could look and see where this word is harpazo is used. It's used of Stephen when he was caught up away from the unit that he was preaching to by the Spirit. Remember that? Uh, Paul speaks in uh, 2 Corinthians, I believe it is, of being caught up into the third heaven. That's the word harpazo. Other places, but here it's related so clearly to the resurrection of Christ and that power that I wanted to show it here. Let's go ahead and read verses uh, 1 to uh, 5. And a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This, I believe, is the covenant community. It's a reference to, to the covenant community of which Christ came. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and pain, to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. And we don't have to guess who that is, right? And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son. Who is this son? A male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was, here's our word, Harpazo, caught up to God and to his throne. Here the word Harpazo is used clearly in this context of the death and the burial and the resurrection and the glorious ascension of Jesus Christ. It's all captured together in that brief little statement that the child was caught up. Suddenly changed with immediate power up into glory. 
And so we too, Paul is saying, in a similar way, will be immediately translated up into glory without passing through the experience of death. In this way, I believe the meaning and the intent of the passage becomes very clear. If you just take it for what it is, we can see the, the order of the things that are to come when the Lord comes again. It says in these verses that the Lord will personally appear. It will be the Lord and no other. Just as the apostles watched him go up into heaven with clouds, we shall see him come again from heaven and appear personally before us. It won't be an image, a mirage. It will be the Lord himself who will come again. Then it says it happens with a shout, a cry of command, voice of an archangel. You can imagine what this assembly will be, this great assembly of heaven and earth coming together. And so it comes with a cry of command, like a commander would, would give the command and all of his armies follow. The archangel will shout, probably Gabriel, who announced every major event related to both the coming of Christ, his birth, and etc. It'll probably be him, but we don't know. And it's with the announcing trumpet of God. Remember in 1 Corinthians when Paul said in a, in a moment at the last trump? That's when this change, great change and sudden change happens. Then not only will the Lord descend from heaven, but all the asleep in Christ will rise first. You know, I don't know. We only have to imagine it, but, but the Bible gives us a clear picture that that happens before we are suddenly changed. They're glorified made immortal by the resurrection of their bodies, joining their perfected souls. We'll somehow witness that. Will we not? Because we who are alive and remain will not precede their raising up from the grave and their joining and meeting with the Lord. Now, it's not that that happens and then everything settles down and a long period of time happens. No, because we're both caught up together the alive and the dead when he comes to meet the Lord. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. But the asleep in Christ, the dead in Christ rise first. Then the awake in Christ will rise next. That's the sudden transformation that we often call the rapture. And whatever else you think about the rapture, whatever else that, that modern theology and, and books and movies have placed into your mind, just know that the rapture, according to the Bible, is none other than a sudden immediate change where we who are alive when Christ returns will not pass through death. We pass immediately into the glories of heaven to be with those whom he has raised from the dead. That's what it means. Both will forever be with the Lord. With them, verse 17 says, doesn't it? It says, we will be caught up with them. They're caught up. The power of the resurrection of Christ catches them. The graves will split open. The power of Christ's resurrection exhibited on all those who have gone before. Millions, millions rising from the dead. And we, just like they're caught up in that power, are caught up in that power with them. That's why I know it happens at the same time. What a day that will be, like the hymn says. Not one believer will be left out of this great assembly. To meet the Lord when he comes back. Not one believer will all see and will all experience the same event together. It happens differently for those who have gone 
who are asleep in Christ versus those who are alive when he returns, but that's the only difference. The same or the connection is that we'll all forever be with the Lord. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, we'll all gather together to be with the Lord in that great day. Abraham will be in that great day. Moses will be in that great day. David will be in that great day. Peter and Paul and John and Jay and Bonnie. All of us who know the Lord by faith will, as verse 17 says, be caught up together with them, with them. I like what Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That where I am, there you may be also. There is so much comfort in those words. There is so much comfort in knowing that not a single believer in Christ, Old Testament and New, will miss out on this great day, this great singular event. When the Lord comes again, there's not a difference between Old Testament who have died in Christ and New Testament who have died in Christ. There's not a difference between those who live today and believe in Christ and those who lived back then and believed in Christ. We're all saved by faith. We're all saved by grace. We're all called out of darkness into his glorious light. And Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians not to grieve because we have such a great hope. You know, everyone who knows the Savior have this hope, has this hope, but if you're not a Christian this morning, you're one of the ones spoken of in verse 13 where it says, don't grieve like the rest who have no hope. Outside of Christ, there is no hope beyond the grave. You've heard Phil say that many times. There is no hope beyond the grave. And so all your hope is that this life, you just get all you can get out of it because you don't believe that there's anything beyond. And if you do, you don't believe the Bible's accounting of it. You don't believe in a great day of reckoning when you shall stand before the judge of all mankind and he shall decree the sentence upon you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. If you are not in Christ, if you are not a believer in Christ, I encourage you, I implore you, implore you to go to the Savior now. Own your sins before Him. Plead with Him that you might be saved and forgiven by the blood of the cross and the power of His resurrection, that you can be among those who have this hope that whether alive or dead, we'll see the Lord and be together with the Lord forever. Why aren't does Paul not speak about the unbelieving in chapter 4? Well, it's because he's writing to Christians. But what about them, the living and the dead when Christ comes? Well, there will certainly be unbelievers living in their body when he comes. There's certainly those that have died in their unbelief and sin. But what about them? Well, since the apostle is writing to comfort believers only... He doesn't speak about it there. But in the context, verses we didn't read, beginning in chapter 5, he does bring them into it and include them. And here it is, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. Now as to the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need of anything be, to be written to you. Of the times and the seasons of the return of Christ. 
the specifics about when he comes and how he comes. Paul says, you don't need for me to repeat these things. In fact, nobody knows exactly when, and so let's put that speculation out of our mind. Let's expect it continually. You're not going to know exactly when. You can look at the signs of the times and recognize, as all believers have, the, the presence and power of the Lord and that His return is near, but you don't know. And so he says, I don't have to write to you about that, but notice the contrast as we continue in these verses. There is a them and a they, and there is an us. And that's the contrast. That's where he brings unbelievers in. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, see the change? You are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of the night nor of the darkness. Now Paul says concerning the return of the Lord, the event comes upon us all with suddenness. It's taught to believers throughout the New Testament. It's a sudden event. It's an event that comes, and when it begins, it, it, it happens. It's there. There's no delay comes with suddenness when it begins. It happens to those who have believed in Christ that way. It happens to those who haven't believed in Christ that way. It's a sudden event. There's a very big difference, though, between those who love the Lord and expect the Lord to come and believe in His truth and, and promote the gospel and love His appearing. We're expecting it. And the destination, or the destiny, if you will, is very drastically different. They... They, the unbelievers, though a part of the same event of the return of the Lord, will be destined to destruction. They will not enter into eternal life. They will enter into judgment, but because they're of the darkness. But you, brethren, you're not of darkness. You've been brought out of the darkness into the spiritual light of Jesus Christ. Look in John, and this is probably where we will wrap up this morning in John chapter 5 and this can be controversial I understand that I'm not trying to be controversial believe me before the Lord I'll never stand up in the pulpit and decide to be try to be controversial it's not my goal in fact I'd rather not the problem I have is if I'm going to preach the word of God the word of God hits us upside the face doesn't it upside the head I should say it rattles us in our complacency it speaks truth where we would gloss over it hits hard where we would mitigate the blow. So if it seems as if there's controversy involved, or it seems as if this contrasts popular beliefs of the day, it's not because I'm trying to do that. It's because I'm trying to be faithful to the Word of God. But in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 29, the Bible teaches concerning those who have refused to believe in the Savior that they too will be resurrected at the return of the Lord. They will. And here's what Jesus said, beginning... In verse 25, Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. Now the clue of what Jesus is saying here is in the phrase, an hour is coming and now is. This is something, what he's about to speak about, is something that is coming ultimately, the resurrection of the dead, but is now also occurring when Jesus spoke it. In what way are the dead right now, prior to the return of the Lord, being raised? Is it not through the new birth? 
that the dead are hearing the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear are rising to new life in Him in their souls. That's exactly what happened to me. I was as dead as dead can be. And I heard, not that I did something, not that I could hear better than others, but by the Spirit of God, I heard the voice of the Son of God. And as a dead soul, dead in trespasses and sins, I heard the voice of the Son of God, and I was raised to new life before Him. That's what our baptism represents, is it not? Dying to the old self and a resurrection in the power and life of Christ. That's why Jesus said it's coming, ultimately, but it's now happening. People are hearing the voice of the Son of God when He calls them to salvation, and those that are hearing are living. Now He goes on in verse 26 and following. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear His voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. All, He said, all, He said, who are in the graves will hear the command to come forth. The destiny is the difference. They that know Christ to a resurrection of eternal life in the power and the grace and the love of God to experience it from then on forever in glorified body and soul. Those who are evil and have rejected the Savior and rejected the gospel will be raised and yet raised for eternal punishment. It happens at the same time. All saved and lost at the return of Christ come forth from the graves. So that leads me also to tell you, again, not trying to be controversial, that just like Paul talked about the dead in Christ, that they'll rise first and be glorified, and then we who are alive. Well, the dead outside of Christ will also be raised to judgment. But what about the alive outside of Christ? They'll be instantaneously changed as well. You never hear that taught today concerning the rapture. They don't bring that category of people in in this way. I don't see it any other way in the scriptures. If you see it another way and can show me from the scriptures, I would like to see it. I don't believe it's there. That there is a resurrection, singular, at the last day, singular, at the blast of the last trumpet, singular. And when Christ personally comes again to receive us, that resurrection will take place. And for us to experience that, to see and hear and in a sensory fashion experience that reality will be so wonderful. We won't be able to believe it, except it's real, it's happening. What we've hoped for is now happening. The one I love, I've seen. The one I've seen by faith, I see now with my very eyes. And not just these eyes, but if we're alive when he comes, glorified eyes, new eyes, immortal eyes. Uh, a soul that cannot suffer the effects of sin any longer. A body that cannot suffer the effects of sin any longer. Joined with those who have gone before, gather together unto the Lord to behold Him. What a day. 
but a very different picture for those who do not know him. Because they will be raised and they will be changed in a sense from a mortal existence to an immortal existence. But it will be one suited to suffering. I'll close with this. I want to read what the Westminster Confession of Faith says, a couple of short paragraphs, concerning the state of men after death. You've heard this before. We read it quite often. At the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different qualities. Boy, that's true which shall be united again to their souls forever. That's true of the saved and the lost. Then it goes on. The bodies of the unjust shall by the power of Christ be raised to dishonor. The bodies of the just shall be by his spirit raised unto honor and be made conformable to his own glorious body. In my mind, it could not be more clear what the Bible teaches concerning the return of the Lord. O glorious day, O day when the heavens shall be split and the Lord shall return. May it be soon. May he come soon. Whether awake or sleep, we will live together. We'll live together in the power of his resurrection. We live that way now spiritually. We live in the power of his resurrection now. But in that day, in the power and the perfection of both body and soul, united the whole man as God intended it to be from all eternity, enjoying the pleasures of heaven with our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, comfort one another with these words, whether in life or in death, whether we are found asleep in our body when he comes or awake in our body when he comes, we will live together with him in glory.